0: Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by Professor Diana uger forsatz Professor uger forsatz is the Director of the Centre for Climate Change and Sustainable Energy Policy at the Central European University in Hungary. She's also Vice Chair of Working Group 3 in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, Uh, Working Group 3 is the one that focuses on climate change mitigation, i.e. ways to reduce emissions, remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, and so on, in general, dealing with the consequences of climate change. She's been a coordinating lead author for two past IPCC reports, as well as a member of the United Nations Scientific Expert Group on Climate Change, and it says here that she was also the Hungarian National Orienteering Champion in 1984, but I guess that's for another podcast. So, Diana, welcome. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a privilege to be able to talk uh, to your community.
0: When I say thanks for taking the time, uh, I guess I really mean it. If I understand it right, at the time of recording, you're literally in the final few days of preparing the next IPCC report, right? I mean, we'll get into the details for sure, but in general, I guess this is quite a busy time for you.
1: Exactly. So thank you for accommodating to our schedule. We are between two sessions while we are discussing the Working Group 2 report. And uh, together with governments, we are preparing the summary for policymakers. And this is um, almost day and night task for two weeks. So this is very exciting because now what we are doing is uh, the second time we are doing this online. So uh, members uh, of governments from around... uh, Close to 150 countries are participating in this exercise, so this is really fascinating to be able to do this online.
0: Yeah, I bet. Well, then thank you for taking the time out. Uh, I do really appreciate it. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of how it all works, perhaps by way of introduction, let me just ask, how long have you been involved in the IPCC?
1: The first time I was invited as a coordinating lead author was around 2001, when I uh, led the building-related chapter in Working Group 3 in the Mitigation uh, Report, Uh, for the fourth assessment report. Uh, One needs to understand that the IPCC works in so-called assessment cycles. So the main activity of the IPCC is to write the so-called assessment reports, which approximately every seven years assesses the latest science related to climate change. So I was leading the building-related work for the fourth such report. Now we are already in the sixth cycle, and what we are just approving is uh, the sixth, assessment report, the working group two report of the sixth assessment report, working group two is that deals with um, impact and adaptation.
0: Great. And this seven year cycle, why seven years? I mean, to put it bluntly, (laughs) why does it take so long?
1: The writing of such a report takes several years, not the whole seven-year cycle, but each report takes about two to three years to prepare. Now, because of the pandemic, it was uh, prolonged by about half a year. But uh, the trick is that what we are doing goes through very rigorous uh, cycle of reviews, at least three cycles of very rigorous reviews. So we definitely need more time than just uh, suddenly crushing and, and, and writing this. Also, we involve... Uh, authors from all around the world and uh, all of these authors work on a voluntary basis so they donate their time they all do that on the top of their day jobs so clearly it's not possible to do this like a consultancy report or another report so this definitely takes years because what we are doing is looking through all the latest science, and then based on the reviews, if we get even further scientific evidence on our radar screen, we also integrate those uh, new findings into the report. So this definitely takes several years. The reason why this is the seven-year cycle, not exactly, but approximately, is because that was the judgment, roughly, of the governments that that is about the timeline when sufficient new evidence comes uh, on the table that also warrants potentially new policy response and new kinds of uh, actions. And I think we have been very successful with this seven-year cycle because... Uh, Basically, almost after each of our assessment reports, some very major international policy developments occurred.
0: Yeah. Well, it certainly does seem that way. I mean, looking in from the outside, there's lots to admire. I guess the IPCC is probably the most prominent science advice system in the world. And when it speaks, not only like the world's media, but policymakers really do listen and policy implications seem to flow from these reports.
1: Exactly. Exactly. We are not just boasting that there were major policy developments, but for example, the fourth assessment report was followed by the Nobel Peace Prize. Then the fifth assessment report, when we published that in 2013 and 2014, then in 2015, the Paris Agreement happened when it was a historic milestone because uh, uh, 140 heads of state were under one roof, which never any other uh, world war or any other financial crisis or economic crisis has never gathered so many world leaders under one roof. And also such an agreement uh, took place, which even hasn't uh, been so much warranted by the science, because the governments agree that they do want to limit climate change, actually, ideally at one and a half degrees and not two degrees. And by that, time the science wasn't really there yet because nobody thought that the politics would be ready for that.
0: So how come? What do you think is the secret of success?
1: I think there are several uh, reasons to that. Perhaps the most important I consider is that we are not just us writing a report and giving it to policymakers, and it's not a one-directional policy advice, which I'm not saying we are the only one, but we are co-generating the knowledge. So we are working together with policymakers. For example, we are just approving the summary for policymakers, which is not only an approval, it's really a co-production of the knowledge. And also today there have been, of course, I can't give away the details of the discussions, but there have been fascinating discussions this morning where governments have provided very interesting scientific nuances, uh, which are not yet full. Captured in um, the summary for policymakers and which actually helped us to refine and improve, and even scientifically being even more precise in this summary. So, what we are doing is really a co generation of knowledge.
0: All right, that's interesting. So can you say a little more about um, at what points in the process uh, your clients, the governments, are involved in, in developing the advice? Because that's something that, well, it's interesting, yeah, and maybe not obvious.
1: How we start is that the outline of each report is co-generated with uh, the governments. So they ask the questions with the scientists together. Uh, But then after the um, outlines are approved, then the governments get out of the picture. And that's also very important because the actual work is independent. So the scientists are working independently. We do have several rounds of reviews, and that's also a very important strength, I think, of our success so these reviews are extremely rigorous even more rigorous than those of a regular journal article since uh, we are reviewed by literally thousands of experts from around the world and we have to respond to every single review comment and the responses are published publicly so it's very transparent in how the authors responded to review comments If we don't observe one of the comments or we can't accommodate it for some reason, we have to have the scientific argument there and scientific evidence why we didn't accommodate that particular review comment. So that's, uh, I suppose, the second uh, ingredient for success.
0: Yeah. Go on. Finish the list because we can come back to some of these.
1: I think the third is we are considered truly independent and objective. And that's extremely difficult in such a complex and politically and economically interwoven topic as climate change. Since by today, there are so many economic stakes related to climate change, either the response or its its, um, impact. There are so many political stakes And there are so many very diverse viewpoints uh, related uh, to climate change. So in this era, it's so important to preserve your integrity and to preserve your independence. And this is extremely difficult. The way how we do that is that IPCC is financially very rigorous in terms of where we accept funding from. And in all our history, we have only accepted funding from governments, but Governments cannot say what it is spent on. The money is put in um, a so-called trust fund. And uh, from there, it's not labeled. It's the IPCC who decides where the money is going for. Even when we were in financial uh, hardships, for example, when the United States... um, who has traditionally been always our largest uh, supporter when the political changes were such that we did not receive that much funding from the US and and there seemed to be uh, challenges for our financial uh, survival. Um, Even then, the IPCC still decided not to accept any other donations, even though, of course, there are many, many multilateral or or corporate funders who wish to donate to IPCC, but we never accepted that. And also what's important is that the authors are all working on a voluntary basis. And that's very difficult, uh, and that poses a lot of challenge, but it's very important that none of the authors can be considered as biased as nobody is paying them, and all of the authors, of course, as in many other policy advice processes, go through very rigorous conflict of interest uh, screenings.
0: Okay, so we have uh, we have co creation, we have independence, and we have this very rigorous review process. So I have quite a few questions springing to mind, but before I ask them, I mean, do you have more that you want to add to the list?
1: Can I add two more? Yeah, please do. Yes. The other, which is uh, extremely important, I think is the diversity. We really make very large emphasis on a very large diversity of perspectives to be incorporated into the report And that is ensured through many processes. One is on the selection of authors. Uh, Even though, of course, just German professors or UK professors could fully write the entire three volumes of the report, we don't allow for that. And now I just picked, and it doesn't matter, there are, of course, many countries whose experts could do that. So we make sure that there is a balance between developed country authors and developing country authors. Of course, now these categories are more... um, dilute but still this is roughly our guidelines also gender balance of course it's not 50-50 yet but we have a very large emphasis on on not only the authors but uh, the coordinating lead authors so who lead our work should also be as much as possible a- as balanced also a diversity of uh, scientific disciplines and um, epistemological perspectives so there is um, uh, we now wish to include as many social scientists as possible as traditionally climate change has mostly been meteorology then later on okay technology engineering maybe then uh, economics but we hope also to involve social scientists and always within one perspective we try to involve authors who cover a range of perspectives so yes uh, it's also important that even the um, literature from the skeptics is for example integrated so, That's why what we try to do is to observe many differences in perspectives and as much as possible integrate them. Of course, this is not possible since there are so many axes along which diversities exist. But uh, already the selection process is very transparent and, um, and uh, and this diversity, I think, does ensure a certain balance of perspectives. The fifth is that, Transparency. We try to work on an extremely transparent basis. Every decision of ours is fully visible to the public. Every review comment and every response to review comment is seen by the public and every decision is shared by large groups. For example, the decision-making body is the bureau in which now I'm working. is also a very international body representing many scientific disciplines. So as a result of that, um, also the decisions are uh, representative and, and fully get documented.
0: Great, thank you. So let's, let's circle back now and pick up on some of these areas in more detail. About Co-production first, this this concept of governments being involved in shaping the advice that they're about to receive. This is a, a very hot topic, as I'm sure you know, in science advice discussions more generally. So you said already that governments are involved at the start in the scoping process, helping to define what the report will cover, and that they then have to uh, butt out and that the scientists do their evidence gathering and evaluating independently. Exactly. What about later on? Do the governments just receive the finished report at the end of the day or, or do they get advance sight of it or what?
1: Not quite. We do have a last review round in which uh, the governments can submit expert review comments which means usually they ask their scientific experts to review the document and they provide uh, comments. It's important to understand that the comments can only be based on scientific evidence. So they cannot say, oh, I don't like this because this is against my political priorities. So these these are basically the three points at which they uh, provide input into the report. So the, the co-production of the outlines of the report, then uh, the review of the reports, the last round of scientific review of the report, and then finally the approval. But the approval is only for the summary for policymakers. So the report itself is scientifically fully independent, and they cannot say that, look, we don't want this or don't want that. They simply provide us their help in what from this giant several thousand page document should go into the summary for policymakers, which is very useful because at the end of the day, they will use it so they know best how we can make the most impactful uh, report.
0: It strikes me that it's quite brave of governments to build the system the way you're describing, because you didn't create yourselves, right? You were created by governments and they fund you and they let you do your work and then they Give you, or at least allow you to have this huge public platform to talk about findings and policy implications. And from what you're describing, the IPCC seems to have almost universal sign up from government. So that takes some political courage to, to create a kind of system which no single government can really control.
1: I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head. It is a brave move, and I do respect the governments that they still come along with this process uh, largely and they put really a lot of emphasis and a lot of resources into influencing this report, I mean, from a scientific perspective, and respecting and using the report, since this is still the quote-unquote Bible for the climate negotiations, and it's very strongly being used, and, and then nobody can claim that, sorry, my science is something else or my scientists have a different position or, or the, uh, my scientists found a different line of evidence uh, and I don't accept. So all governments come along with this and, and do participate in this process, even... Is at the end of the day, perhaps the findings of the report are not necessarily the most um, favourable for their particular political interests. So so I think it is, in the end, uh, very respectable for, for all governments to do that, as you uh, rightly pointed it out.
0: Hmm. I wonder a bit, and this is a question from your experience on the inside. So, of course, the IPCC is built to be independent, as you described, but it's not financially independent. I mean, you can only continue to exist with the goodwill of governments. And and they could, in theory, like collectively end your existence tomorrow if they wanted. And of course, this is nothing unusual. It's the same with any institutional science advice mechanism. Someone is paying to keep the lights on, right? Given that, I wonder how deep you feel this independence and freedom to speak truth to power really goes. Or is there a kind of subconscious awareness that, Although you've theoretically been given this big scientific freedom and this freedom to speak about public policy with authority, you had better not use it in a politically unwise way, in a way that might threaten the support you currently enjoy from governments. I don't know, hopefully you can see where I'm going with that.
1: I think that's absolutely right, and I think it is important to understand that that's definitely not the role of IPCC to criticize governments. That's not our business. We don't do that, but we don't even praise governments. <laughs> that's uh, and the reason is because uh, because if we praise one government, another government will surely say, "Hey, come on, why why are you picking out that one and not our one?" So with this, it's actually very nicely balanced. <laughs> Uh, report at the end of the day. Um, Our purpose is not to criticize uh, or praise governments. Our purpose is really to evaluate uh, different policy responses and uh, look at the scientific lines of evidence on different policy responses and help governments what uh, options they have. And since every government situation is different, Every climate change is different in each different localities. There are really a diversity of options and we can never say which is better than the other. So all we are doing is is uh, putting out what are the different options from which uh, they can choose.
0: Mm-hmm. And these uh, like practical policy options that you're describing, where do they come from? Are they also generated independently by the scientists or are they co-produced with governments?
1: The policy responses, we are looking from the literature. So what we look at is what the literature documents. And actually, that's really an interesting point that you're raising, because sometimes the scientific literature is a bit slower in evaluating certain things or... or, or um, or different solutions are perhaps a bit slower in getting into the scientific literature. One area is, for example, buildings where I work. And what I noticed that on the ground, there are actually much more advanced solutions from a technological perspective than what's already evaluated in the science. Because of course, it takes time. Once there is a building, you know, a very advanced building that alone does not get into the scientific literature. It's just one example, of one case that uh, journal editors don't like. Um, papers on just one single uh, case. So until there is a variety of uh, cases out there, which is already possible uh, to have sufficient data to be evaluated. And that takes time. And then by the time it's evaluated research and then goes through the peer reviewed publication process, it's definitely several years. While with climate change, the solution is urgent. So what we have been trying to do is uh, also, I think, very much the innovation of this cycle is again, co-production, knowledge co-production, but not only the high-level policymakers, but also with professionals and the down-to-earth policymakers, because with that could um, or integrate much more the, the the professional knowledge that is perhaps not yet in the academic literature.
0: Hmm. So to a degree, you're, you're not only reviewing the evidence, but also doing a bit of your own primary research, essentially.
1: Well, that is a very good question. We are not allowed to do primary research.
0: So, okay, but what you just described is going beyond the literature to extract knowledge from, from on the ground. Okay, so draw the distinction for me between that and primary research. Yes,
1: very, very good problem. What we do is more meta-assessment. So, for example in this cycle what happened is that we understood that on cities it's especially in area that there is not sufficient academic and scientific literature and the knowledge is much more in the hands of the frontier knowledge of mitigation. is much more in the hands of actual professionals, down-to-earth Monday to Friday policymakers, and perhaps in engineers and contractors and, and urban designers. So, for example, what the IPCC did, we co-hosted a, a major scientific conference on uh, citizen climate change in Vancouver with more than 700 participants. And we encouraged this co-production of knowledge. So this is the way how we are... Um, Um, We are trying to co-produce the knowledge with these other scientific communities. And what we are trying to do, we are trying to catalyze more scientific literature that is the result of co-production. But certainly it's not us who does it.
0: Okay, so it's more about pointing out where there are evidence gaps and stimulating new research to fill them.
1: Exactly. As a result of that, there is a multitude of scientific articles now which document much better uh, this uh, faster evolving field. So it's uh, still not our research because it's still not the IPCC, it's still the researchers and the IPCC can decide to use that knowledge or not. Um, the other way how we actually do implement this uh, better co-production is that in each report we do invite a few authors who are actually from the industry or from policymakers of course they do have to have some scientific background so they do have to be able to read scientific articles and to have to write in a scientifically rigorous manner but we have um We have even experts from the oil industry. And that has been always very important because we do want to incorporate that perspective as well. We have also scientists from uh, representing NGOs or policymakers uh, themselves.
0: So this brings me to another area I wanted to ask you about. How are these many different scientists selected? Who makes the call and who's eligible?
1: Anyone is eligible. Anyone can apply. The choice of the authors rests on the bureau. The bureau is uh, elected by the governments for each cycle. So one assessment cycle has one set of bureau. Each working group has about, uh, if I remember about seven uh, bureau members, which represent different regions, but again, different disciplines and uh, different uh, scientific perspectives, genders, and so on. So these are a diverse set of experts who together with the co-chairs, select the authors. We select based on nominations. So mostly governments nominate, but not only governments, but also its national organizations and other bodies, uh, UN bodies also are able to nominate. And once these nominations are received, uh, then the Bureau selects. It's a very complicated process because uh, we receive at least 10 nominations for each slot.
0: Yeah, I can well imagine, yeah.
1: Which is actually, to some extent, a surprise, if you consider that these authors receive no not only no funding, but they are obliged to come to our lead author meetings, which are usually very high cost. And the IPCC does not provide these costs, So, except for developing country authors. But most authors have to find their own funding to come to uh, these meetings. But still, there is a major competition for getting into these positions. And again, the selection process has several rounds. First, just based on the scientific perspectives, we try to make a first round of selections. And then we look at how well we fared on the diversity of different perspectives. And in the end, of course, for the chapters, what expertise is needed and to make sure that each chapter has each of the uh, sets of expertise that we need that chapter to be written. So all these criteria, it's a very, very complicated puzzle game or, or almost chess game to, in the end, fill each position that ticks all the different boxes that we need to tick.
0: Yeah, so you end up with these very diverse groups. I mean, and I can imagine why not only because the science needs it, you need to be able to cover every aspect of climate change, which is a sort of vast, you know, all encompassing subject, but also because you want to be able to show politically that you included everyone. So that's all well and good. But then having done that, you divide people into different working groups. So one on physical science, one on impact adaptation, and then one on mitigation. Why go to all those efforts to get every discipline around the table And then split them into silos?
1: I think that's a very, very good question. And that's a question that the IPCC itself has been struggling with. At the end of each cycle, we ask the question, should we really silo these uh, solutions? For example, in the real life, when policymaker or a municipal decision maker has to respond to climate change, it's very important that they don't silo adaptation mitigation approaches. When you design the next district, when you design your transportation system, these all come together. So, of course, these always emerge, whether we should unite, for example, working groups two and three, and even for X one, because we don't want uh, authors to work separately, In the end, I think it's not a bad decision that it has been kept still this way because there is always a trade-off between integration and still being able to be relevant. That's in general, I think, even at a higher level, uh, we struggle from this question that you just asked, the, the right balance between systemic perspectives and integrated answers versus being really relevant and being able to provide actionable advice. Because, yes, it's important to be systemic and um, be integrated, but at the end of the day, the average policymaker has to decide Monday morning at 9 a.m., and he only has a mandate for a very specific set uh, of questions to decide over them, and he cannot decide on anything and everything that would ideally be great. And also, if you put far too many people together, um, it's uh, far more discussions, far more complex answers, you may just never end up with really your answers. Yeah,
0: so there's practical limitations.
1: Exactly. So I think so far it has worked quite well working in three working groups, but we do have much more mechanisms that actually still integrate between uh, these uh, working groups. Now we have cross working group boxes and we allow lead authors to attend other working groups meetings. And we have specific envoys who actually uh, have a mandate to integrate between working groups. So we rather choose different vehicles for this integration.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay, that was going to be my next question. Because one of the things I've seen experts really benefit from in the, in the few meetings I've sat on the edges of is the presence of and the chance to discuss things with people who not only come from a different discipline but kind of intersect with the topic at a different angle. Like you say, perhaps mitigation rather than adaptation or uh, behaviour change rather than prediction or whatever you get this cross-pollination. And it's in a way, it's a shame that you can't just put your 1,000 people around the same table and have them talk to each other. But of course, it's not practical.
1: Absolutely. But I think you're absolutely right. But if you consider that already within each chapter, there are so many diverse perspectives that I think there is already there a cross-fertilization. And then when the whole working group lead authors get together the transport expert has to listen to the economist who works on the international agreements and uh, the urban expert urban designer has to listen to those who work on uh, the sustainable development uh, aspects and so there is already a lot of cross uh, fertilization of course even more is even better so we do have um, these uh, vehicles But I think for us, another very important vehicle is the synthesis report. So at the end of each cycle, we produce the so-called synthesis report that integrates the results of these three working groups. And what we have done in this cycle that we have already started early enough putting, first of all, the authors, selecting the authors of the synthesis report, but also crafting the outline of the synthesis report so that already the authors, when they write their respective working group uh, reports, have in mind how to synthesize this information, how to put the big picture together so that they are aware that they are creating the little puzzle pieces that, in the end, will have to be put into the uh, big picture
0: puzzle. Yes, these scientists... If you described all have different disciplines and they also come from many different parts of the world, which means different cultures, uh, countries whose populations or governments have different attitudes to climate change in many cases, certainly very different interests and priorities. To what extent do these scientists come in to the room draped in their flags or how much can they leave their backgrounds by the door and just talk science? I mean, do you find yourself sometimes rolling your eyes when someone makes a contribution and thinking, now, oh, of course, she would say that she would take that particular view because she's from wherever.
1: Absolutely. I mean, but it's not only the countries at all. It's also our scientific disciplines or our research domains. Um, of course, if I put up my hand, uh, my colleague, should oh, here she will. she come again with her cities or something <laughs> like that. So... Um, uh, or, or with energy demand or something like that. So so clearly, we all come with a certain amount of baggage, with a certain amount of bias. And this is not, um, not political bias. It's a scientific uh, bias, because simply we are more aware of a certain domain of the science uh, than others. But that's exactly the strength. And that helps a lot if these can kept in a constructive debate, then this really helps uh, global solutions as well. Because uh, because once you put these very different perspectives together, then it's easier to see each other. As normally, we do work in our little, little I wouldn't say silos, but our, our little um, clubs, our little own worlds, universes where we think, uh, where we are mostly, familiar with our own literatures, with our own perspectives, with and that can be either national or, or scientific or disciplinary or epistemological or, or, or have you. So we certainly go with that. But I think it's true for, for everybody because no one can be aware of every single perspective. And, and that's why it's really fascinating. For me, it has been the experience of my lifetime to be able to work in IPCC because to understand uh, the, the diversity of perspectives and understand that those who think differently are not evil or not necessarily trying to disrupt. It's really their scientific perspective. It's their uh, their why, why is that that they, they are um, they have that perspective. And, and finding better the common solutions, or if not common solutions, but solutions that hurt each other less, uh, is extremely important. And, and I've been really enjoying this work.
0: I can imagine it must be very stimulating, yeah. Okay, so this is a question clearly inspired by my own particular perspective. I'd like to ask about public communication. This is something I think it's fair to say the IPCC is very good at. And in a way, that's kind of surprising to me. Because as you described, it's made up of many, many different scientists with different perspectives and different opinions and different styles and so on. And I know that inside the room, their job is to find a consensus that works for everyone. But they also leave that room and they go back to their home countries and they talk to to their home countries and to the world. They step into the media spotlight and they're all used to having freedom in general to express their own scientific views and they're being asked about the IPCC and what goes on there by many thousands of different journalists who themselves have different agendas and so on and so on you get the idea I have to say from a professional point of view this sounds to me like a recipe for chaos so my very genuine interesting question to you is why is it not chaos
1: Absolutely. And and that's a very important question. And I I did want to say that I forgot to identify this as the sixth element of our success. I think that communication is definitely a crucial element of our success because the IPCC is very rigorous about who can communicate about our work and what they can communicate our work. And this is very strictly enforced by IPCC. And this is no censorship because I tell you the basic principle of communication. All we are allowed to communicate about IPCC is what has been approved by the government. So reports that has gone through the rigorous review process and which have been approved uh, by the government and in the end also by the experts since we went through this rigorous review process. So only what is published and only from the perspectives that how it has been published. And that has been really important because, of course, there are thousands of scientists who write for IPCC. They all have their uh, disciplinary perspective, They all have their pet solutions. Uh, but when they speak on behalf of IPCC, they can only represent what the IPCC has published. And when they speak about their own perspective, they have to say that we are now putting on a different hat. So communicating on behalf of IPCC is really those who are authorized to do that. So they are mostly the co-chairs. And after the report is published, now we increasingly also empower our authors to communicate on behalf of IPCC. But we give them media trainings because that's another very, very hard thing because uh, v- very often media has their own messages uh, that they want you to convey through the, their interviews. And this is not easy to stand against. So we give our authors uh, trainings on how to best uh, address uh, these different challenges in communication. In addition to communicating with the media, we do a lot of so-called outreach events where uh, together with decision makers or policymakers or municipalities or academia, we host events and release the findings uh, of our reports. But it is important to understand that it's not in IPCC's mandate to really communicate uh, the results. So we do some basic communication of our reports, but it's not in our mandate, for example, to translate this for the layperson, for the everyday person, for for the average uh, reader. Our target audience is the policymakers. That's in our mandate. And anything else, we do help, but we don't do ourselves.
0: All right. There are a few things there that I find interesting, but the last point is is really interesting. This idea of not having a mandate for public communication, so targeting only the policymakers. Uh, I guess I admire the simplicity of that, but this means that all the stuff we read, all the stuff we hear, explaining what the IPCC has said and done, those are all written by people other than the IPCC, by journalists or pressure groups or... NGOs or whoever, I, I suppose our own governments even. One reason I think organizations often choose the other route and put a lot of effort into public outreach and dissemination and lay communication is because that way they can try to keep control of what's said about them and to an extent how things are reported, which can be seen as very important. So, does the IPCC really have no interest in? jumping in to try and set the record straight when the public debate is is veering way off course? You know, just to say something like, wait, that's not what our report says at all. You should read page 94 or whatever. You leave that all to others.
1: Uh, That's a good question. But I have never seen the IPCC really trying to do that. There have perhaps been one or two just major issues when perhaps the IPCC responded, uh, either the climate gate or... For example, when there is one... There are many, but there is one uh, specific misunderstanding that has made a lot of media headlines around the world. And, and for example, the, we have 12 years left. And that was a little bit of a misunderstanding. So what the IPCC has done, simply they uh, have issued uh, a detailed guidance on how to respond to such questions and sent it out to the authors so that whoever gives interviews is uh, helped by how to better clarify that this is a misunderstanding and what really our numbers meant.
0: Yeah, that also makes some practical sense. Of course, I I guess you can't possibly have the resources to hire tens of thousands of press officers to work in each country, so you rely on your experts to do that work for you. So therefore, it's more about briefing and equipping them. But then this also brings up another issue, which has been something of a, a running conversation on this podcast over the past couple of years. And that's about the public loyalty that you can expect from your science advisors. So in one way, what you're describing sounds totally normal and routine to me. I mean, if you work for an organization, you follow its rules when you talk about it in public, like it's part of your basic duty. But on the other hand, I mean, the IPCC is an institution, right, it's an organ of the UN, but your experts are not. They're private citizens working for you on a voluntary basis. And to make matters worse in a way, They're scientists who work in a domain where their personal views and independence and integrity are prized. I mean, quite rightly, that's how science works. And they're used to having academic freedom to say what they want and to call shots how they see them. So how much loyalty do you think IPCC science advisors should have in public to the IPCC? And is this even possible to enforce?
1: Of course, I think our authors accept it from the perspective that In the end, it's not so difficult to implement because we don't have any way uh, space (laughs) for really having individual criticisms or direct issues. And in a way, we do evaluate in the end uh, some of the government policies, even if not directly for that of one government. But in general, we do say if if certain types of policies have not worked as well uh, as others. But I think uh, it's a very serious uh, issue. And I think for us, how it perhaps comes out more as about the question of advocacy. It's a very important question and a very interesting question. How much scientists should engage in advocacy? Normally, scientists shouldn't engage in advocacy. But when you have such a very urgent and very grave problem as climate change, where most of us who are really dealing with it see that we have, very little time left, and and this is, is a really very serious issue. Then can we really just use only our science, which then almost nobody listens to? Of course, uh, that's not true, but still, it's listened to in a very limited way, and just sit on our laurels and uh, lean back that we have done our job. For example, recently a nature a survey has been published by Nature who looked at this. In fact, the majority of IPCC scientists think that the IPCC authors should be engaged in advocacy to different levels, and many of them do engage in advocacy. Just coming back to your original question of of being how loyalty to your authority, I think the the reason why for IPCC it's a bit easier because you are only doing this in, in a voluntary capacity as uh, on the top of your day job. So when you represent IPCC, I think it's easier to isolate yourself uh, from any of these other questions. And then when you put on your scientist hat, then you face these questions, but then you are more free to engage with these questions.
0: Yeah, I can see how that's a useful distinction to be able to keep in mind if you can. So we've talked then about a whole load of different interesting features of the IPCC setup. Which of those do you think might usefully be adopted by other science advice institutions, or indeed have already been adopted by them?
1: Thank you. And that's also an excellent question. And what we see that fortunately this model of uh, how the IPCC works has been already replicated in different scientific areas, but also in different countries. For example, uh, the the Intergovernmental Platform, on biodiversity and ecosystem services has been already working for a a large number of years based on the IPCC model and trying to also solve our other major ecological crisis uh, uh, of biodiversity. Also, we see that countries are also replicating the IPCC process. And there are several countries where there is an own um, kind of IPCC report. We have the Brazilian panel on climate change. We have an Austrian panel on climate change. We have the New York City panel on climate change. uh, We Hopefully, we have soon a Hungarian panel on climate change. So this has been uh, replicating already into national uh, examples, Finnish panel on climate change as well. And there are many others. The second is is definitely the funding. And that's, I guess, uh, the tough part. Because uh, I guess the IPCC's uh, success now relies already on the good reputation of the IPCC. So many scientists volunteer to do this. Because otherwise, it's very hard for a science advice mechanism to expect voluntary work. But as soon as you pay them, clearly, even if not directly, but indirectly, that scientist to some extent feels that they need to be loyal to a certain extent, and it may bias uh, unconsciously the findings. Transparency and diversity, I think these are the ones that are not necessarily always included in certain scientific advice mechanisms. We still tend to treat some disciplines as um, superior and other disciplines perhaps as inferior. And social sciences is, for example, do tend to be, at least in my field, in energy and climate change, social sciences are often just the afterthought. Social sciences are often just those who, okay, now I have this perfect technology, so now you say how to make the stupid people finally accept my excellent (laughs) technology, uh, because they just don't understand. And instead, you know, a more epistemological humility, inclusivity is, I think, key to a really successful uh, science advice mechanism. And I'm not criticizing anything because all of these do come uh, as a natural uh, consequence of, uh, of how many of our big problems have evolved. But I think if we just step back a little and uh, apply more humility with regard to all own uh, disciplines that just because we think we know the answer, and I think all of us tend to think that way, um, we do need to allow for more of a diversity of different perspectives. And I think that's still not often enough happening and taking place in many of the uh, science advice mechanisms.
0: Yeah. So there are clearly these features of the IPCC that contribute to its success. And I think from one perspective, that success is undeniable, as you've just said. Um, But from another way of looking at things, it could also be, and indeed it has been, quite heavily criticised, One obvious point is that it hasn't really worked. Like if the aim is to save the world from destructive climate change, well, the world is not saved. The science hasn't persuaded everyone. Um, You know the emissions figures as well as I do, I'm sure, are much better. But even just comparing the IPCC's own recommendations with the policy actions that have actually been taken, there's a dramatic mismatch. Plus, it seems to me that the science of climate change is still contested in some areas, right? There are some influential voices that completely dismiss the whole thing. This is a challenging place for the IPCC to find itself, uh, working on such a highly contested area. And the question is open as to whether much concrete progress has been made. I wonder if you have some comment on that.
1: Well, first of all, I don't think the science of climate change is still contested. Just because there are some voices who still try to pick out certain lines of Not even evidence, but probably false evidence or maybe the one scientific paper on disputing something, small thing and and blow that up. That's a different issue. And that will happen because uh, what we need to see is that there are very strong economic and political interests who are hurt by us understanding that we just need to change very many things how we have been doing things. And that's, uh, that's almost normal. I absolutely don't think... That is the failure of the IPCC, that emissions haven't changed yet. Just because science and even science policy advice uh, has been working very effectively, or we have done our job very well, it will never mean that the world decides to absolutely go that way. Because uh, I wish if all political and policy decision makings were based on just science, but they aren't. Of course, each government and each decision maker has to incorporate a lot of different perspectives in their decisions, including uh, what the, for a government what their voters say, including what their uh, major taxpayers say, including very, very many different diverse things. and and that science is just one. Nevertheless, I think what I worry about more is that in the recent years, Science has been able to influence policymaking less and less because the public increasingly gets their information not from more trustworthy sources, but more and more social media bubbles. And that gives uh, a lot of um, rise to fake news and, and fake science or, or misinformation. And that, as happens, also decision-makers and policymakers and politicians are more and more pressed to take their decisions based on this fake news. And the the best example is, let's say, about uh, vaccines or or masks uh, and, and the whole COVID response the response to the whole COVID crisis in our democracies is very worrying to me from the perspective of how we respond to climate change, because even related to COVID, a lot of the science was very clear at the beginning. A lot of the scientific advice was very clearly communicated, but still governments were not able to often Uh, Or maybe at the beginning they were, but later on, they were more pressured by different responses from their societies, and they had to decide not necessarily along the scientific perspectives. So I don't consider myself that it's the IPCC's failure, why we are not there yet. But it's also very important to highlight that, in fact, the IPCC's messages have really changed the world. Let me just give you one example just in 2018, it's just a little bit more than three years ago, we published our report on one and a half degrees of climate change. That was the first time when we just, we did nothing else. We just drew our emission lines, how the emissions have to go if we want to cap global warming and 1.5 degrees. And we just happened to show that actually these lines unfortunately happen to cross the zero line around 2050. Almost all of these lines cross it somewhere around 2050. So we have to be net zero uh, emissions, uh, carbon neutral by the middle of the century. That's all we did. We never said you have to or you need to, or we never subscribed anything. We just showed these lines. Only three years later, at the end of 2021, countries representing 90% of all carbon dioxide emissions have net zero commitments. And even though anyone can say, oh, well, you know, it's easy to make a 2050 commitment, but many of these countries also have midterm commitments, corresponding earlier targets. And even though these still have many issues, it's a very important change because earlier, developing countries, and I don't want to name, but most of them said, why should we do anything when it's all your fault by today? The two major developing country emitters, China and India, which is not yet a major emitter, but clearly it will soon be a very major emitter, both of them have net zero commitments. I do believe that this is a really major milestone, and it has become the norm for companies and countries to take net zero commitments. So that means that just one of our reports have very significantly influenced the global discourse on climate change and has, at least on the rhetorical level, and not, I'm not sure yet whether the action level, but at least at the commitment level, has uh, had major influence. And once you have the commitments, and you are certainly liable about these to your stakeholders to your uh, communities. So I do think that our reports have had very significant influence, even though, yes, we are not there yet, but that will take more than just science.
0: Well, well said. And um, on that note, it's time for me to say, Professor Diana Uge-Vorsatz, thank you very much for your uh, informative and very inspiring optimism or realism I will let you get back to your 24-hour calendar of meetings and reviews Um, and I believe that by the time our audience first hears this conversation they'll already be able to see in the media the results of your hard work today Um, so thank you again for taking the time out of that busy schedule to record this conversation and uh, thanks for appearing on the podcast
1: thank you for the opportunity
0: The Science for Policy podcast is produced by CEPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. CEPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation. And you can find lots more information about us and our work at sopea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.